You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Amen. It's wonderful to be together this morning. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the text from which I'll be preaching this morning, which is in the Old Testament. One of the minor prophets still, Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Amos chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Of course, you can find that in the Black Pew Bible. If you see one of those in front of you, you could open up your phone and Google simply Amos 2, and that will get you close enough as we are beginning the second chapter in the book of Amos this morning. I didn't become a Christian uh, until the summer uh, before my 18th birthday, actually right around the time of my 18th birthday. And I, I kind of floundered around quite a bit in those early years after coming to Christ. I had been raised uh, in a, a church-going home, and we had attended church. I was part of youth group, but uh, I don't ever remember hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ such that I would come to understand that I'm a sinner and that I need God's grace to save me until I attended a Christian basketball camp. And at that Christian basketball camp, every day we would have different athletes that we looked up to, local college athletes who would share the gospel with us uh, throughout that week. And it was during that week that God did a work in my heart to open my eyes to what it means to be a Christian. That it wasn't simply about just going to church. It, it wasn't even just about reading the Bible or having a Bible or saying prayers when I feel I'm in trouble. But it was about having a real relationship with the God of the universe by faith in his son, that he had given his son for my sins to live a perfect life in my place, to die on the cross in my place, and then to rise from the dead. And if I, by faith, would trust in him, and I would come before him and and give my life to him, that he would save me, and he would keep me, and he would grow me, and he would be my, my king, and then he would satisfy me. Well, for those early years after I became a Christian, I struggled for quite a while. And it was about 20 years ago when a profound truth came home to me. And an enormous amount of the Christian life suddenly began to make sense to me. And my floundering turned into flourishing. And this was essentially the truth that came home to me about 20 years ago. And it is this. The God himself is highest in his own affections. If I try to put that in a simple way, it means this. That God does everything he does, every moment of every day, for himself. For his own glory. If he were to be like us and wake up in the morning, he would wake up with his own glory and happiness on his mind. And if he were like us and he were to lay down and go to sleep at night, he would go to sleep at night with his own glory and happiness on his own mind. Now that truth was hard for me to understand. It was hard for me to really grasp how that could be true how that could be good, how that could be beautiful. I mean, imagine today on this Father's Day, by the way, happy Father's Day to the fathers who are here. Imagine if I went home after church with my family and we sat down for lunch and finished lunch and had a nice conversation and then we went over to the couch and I invited uh, my wife and children 
to come over and sit on the floor at my feet, and I, I pulled a book out from underneath the couch, and I said, family, I have, I have written something for you. I have written a collection of poems and songs, and all of these poems and songs are about how wonderful I am. <laughs> and what I would like for you to do now is open the book together, and I would like you to sing these songs to me with all of your heart. And if you don't, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I can't have anything to do with you. You see, that picture, that picture doesn't work for us, does it? It doesn't work for us because we know that for us, there's something wrong about that. Right? We don't like self-centered people. We have in our own hearts this gripping sense when we are being self-centered that we are going way wrong. But it's not because there is something wrong with being self-centered. It's that there's something wrong with trying to be the center when you're not. That's why it is so right for me to keep hold of and treasure and, and rejoice over the truth that came home to me 20 years ago, which is simply this, that God is self-centered. He is highest in his own affections. He is number one on his own list. And what's so beautiful about that is that he has so created us as his creatures that recognizing and rejoicing and singing to him is what he has made as the thing that will make us most happy and most satisfied in life. Now, that difficult truth is a truth that I think we have to carry with us into every passage of Scripture, especially a passage like the one that we have this morning. And so I want you to keep that truth in your mind as hard as it may be. For some of it's, it's, it's new to us. We haven't thought much about that. I, can, I, I know what that's like. But I want you to hold that in your mind, and I want you to keep considering that because our God is the center. It is right and good for him to do all things for his glory and that by doing all things for his glory, he has done the very best thing for us. He makes us satisfied. He makes us happy in him. And that's the joy of the Christian life. I hope that that truth this morning will cause us to thrive. I hope it will cause us to consider carefully what we read in his word this morning. Uh, as many of you know, our practice here in our church is to work kind of verse by verse through books of the Bible, and so we're going to cover verses 1 through 5 in Amos chapter 2. Now this morning, what we're going to be considering together, though, are three tragedies. We're in a book of the Bible that's full of tragedy. Essentially, the book of Amos is the book of a prophet who had envisioned visions given to him by God, and they were visions about judgment. They were visions about how God was bringing judgment and wrath and correction and discipline upon the people of the world, in particular, his own people, because they had rejected his law. And so as we come to this text this morning, we're going to notice three tragedies that come out of unbelief. Unbelief is the greatest problem in, in the universe. 
Because remember, it is belief in Christ that God has made to be the most satisfying, most glad-making thing in the world, and yet the vast majority of the world does not believe. They may believe that God exists. They may believe that God has some power. But they don't believe in the way that the Bible tells us to believe or the way that God's grace causes us to believe. And so it's good for us to consider these three tragedies when it comes to unbelief. Let me give you a quick recap by just looking at the first three verses of Amos chapter 2 because they're very similar to the passages we've been reading since the book, the beginning of the book of Amos. As Amos' visions have been about different people groups surrounding God's people, Israel. And so some of those have been Gaza or Damascus or Moab. And with each one, there's been the same kind of pattern going on where God is, is giving the vision of, of judgment that's coming. It's often a judgment of fire. It's a judgment of military conquest that God would remove certain protections and those people would be laid bare before their enemies. And so we see that same kind of pattern follow in one through three, but then something interesting happens. God has been working his way sort of in a circle around his chosen people, Israel. And now we've come in chapter two to a place where God moves his declarations into the circle. And he begins talking about his own chosen people and the judgment of war, the warning of his judgment upon them. And so listen to what he says about Moab, just as a reminder, set the context. And then we're going to look at verses four and five more closely as we consider those three tragedies of unbelief. This is what it says in verse one. This is what the Lord says. For three offenses of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. In each of these cases, there have been these cruel, uh, extreme measures taken against other people and it has awakened the wrath of God. Verse two, so I will send fire upon Moab and it will consume the citadels or the military fortresses of Kiriath and Moab will die amid the panic of battle, amid war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will also eliminate the judge from her midst and slay all her leaders with him, says the Lord. For this is very serious. We've been reading serious visions from the very beginning of the book of Amos. But now as we turn to verses 4 and 5, we see that the focus of these visions is turning to the people of God who are referred to here and then, and then again next week as Judah or Israel. And so this morning, what I'd like for us to see are three tragedies of unbelief that they might help us to better understand why it is so good for us to listen carefully to the word of God and for us to pour ourselves into knowing the word of God so that we may actually know God, the God who makes us happy, the God who, who gives us satisfaction in our hearts, the God who is sovereign and wise and good, the God whom we should look to every moment of every day. And so here is the first tragedy of unbelief. As we see it working out in this warning about the people of Israel, the chosen people of God, the people who belong to him, and it is that unbelief rejects God's law. That's a tragedy. 
It's a tragedy of tragedies for any person at any time, anywhere, in any way, to reject the law of God. Now, when we talk about the law of God in the Bible, we are often talking about the Bible. We're talking about the the unfolding plan of redemption that God has revealed in the 66 books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And so this law is actually what set apart the people of Israel from all the other peoples of the world and still does to this day. Because there's only one true God and there are no others, all other gods are false gods manufactured by human hands and hearts, that he is the only God who actually can and does speak to his people. And this is at the center of what set apart the people of Israel in the Old Testament. It was that their God, unlike any of the other gods, had given them a revelation of himself. He had spoken to them about his own character, who he is, what they should call him, what he is like, and what were his plans in the world. He had announced to them his purposes to bring himself glory by saving people from their sins. So when we think of the law of God, we think of all of this story that unfolds in the Bible, including both God's revelation of his character, his expectations of all people in his world, which we have broken. We've all broken his commands. You may most often think of the Ten Commandments, and if, if you're honest and you take a look at those Ten Commandments and measure yourself by them, you'll immediately see that you, like me, have kept none of them. And therefore, because this God is righteous and holy, as we've seen in Amos and other places in the Bible, His wrath falls because of law-breaking But also in his law, he has revealed to us the good news of his son who came to live a perfect life in our place when we did not die on the cross and then rise from the dead. That by trusting in him, we could be found innocent before him. Not guilty of law breaking, but we would be found innocent having kept the law because of what Jesus did for us. This is in essence the gospel that we want to make paramount in our church and in our community. This is what we are rejoicing over. And it is this law, this revelation of God that set them apart from the people of the world. It was their hope. It was their life. It was their instruction. It is ours. And therefore, you're hearing it come on stronger and stronger. Therefore, it is a tragedy in unbelief for any person at any time, anywhere, and in any way to reject the law of God. Listen to what it says in verse four. This is what the Lord says. For three offenses of Judah and for four, Judah being the southern kingdom, which had split, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. He's now moving into the nation of Israel and he's declaring this correction and judgment. He says, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord. A word that the Bible often uses to describe rejecting God or rejecting his law is the word scorn. You've probably heard that word before. It has an interesting history. 
It's actually an old French word, escorn, and it refers to something that happens very commonly in livestock breeding, cattle and goats and sheep, and it's the practice of dehorning. You can hear it in that word, escorn, dehorning. It's to take the horns of an animal and shorn them off, to scorn them. Sometimes it happens when that animal is, is very young and the first bits of the horn are taken off and then cauterized so they won't grow back. Sometimes later it's taking that long pointed horn and shaving it off to get rid of it. And the purpose is the same. The reason that we would take off the horns of cattle is to make them safe, is to make them easy to handle. You can hear right there in that picture exactly what the people of Judah had done, exactly what we have done at times and people around the world. When we come in contact with the law of God, there's something inside of us. The Bible calls it remaining sin. There's sin inside of us. We don't like that law. We do not like to be told what to do. We don't want anyone over us. We don't really believe in authority, and therefore our first response when we come to anything that's a horn of God's law is to shave it off, to make it easier to handle, to make it more controllable. Well, this is what the people of Israel had done, and this is what had brought about this stern rebuke and warning. Well, why is that so serious? Why is it so serious to cut off the horns of the law of God or to reject or scorn his law? Well, I think that we should look no further than a passage that you heard earlier this morning, and it's in Psalm 19. Now, Psalm 19 is one of those beautiful psalms in which we read in the first part, the first few verses, six verses, we read about the glory of God in the world. As you look around, you can see the sun going across the sky, rising and setting. You see all that he has made in the stars, and you see that he is putting on display his glory. Because remember, that God is highest in his affection, so even in his world, he's made his world to show off his glory, so that if any person were to look up at the stars at night, or to see the sun, or feel it in the noonday, that you would be reminded of a God who rules and reigns, who is glorious and beautiful, who's unmatched by any other, so that you might then grope for him and come and find him and you might know him. Well, the very next part of Psalm 19 tells us more about the law of God. And we see exactly why it's a tragedy to cut off the law of God. And it's because of all the wonderful things that God intends to do in your life and in my life with his law. These are things, when you read this passage, it was again probably 20 years ago when I first read this passage, and this came home to me. It totally reworked my view of God's word. It totally reworked my view of, of, his, of his commandments, of his law. And it was seeing that they were not given to me in order to impale me like the horn of a bull, but they were given to me to give me life to help me know God. This is what it says in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. You'll see that different synonyms are used to refer to the word of God, the law of God. And this psalm, these verses will tell you what is God's law. 
and what it does. Listen how beautiful this is. This is one of those Father's Day poems that God the Father would have us sit at his feet and recite back to him because it will make us happy. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Sin has undone our souls. Sin has killed our souls. Sin has twisted our souls. We see that because looking to God, running to God, is not the first thing that we do. It's often the last thing that we do. And therefore, our souls need to be restored into this proper relationship. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores our soul. Next synonym, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This means that it gives us knowledge and wisdom for those who would say, I want to know more about God. I feel that I know so little. He says, look to my law. Look to what I've revealed to you about myself. I can make you, the simple, wise. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Friends, I never thought about the word of God this way. In those early days when I floundered as a Christian, even before I became a Christian, one of the reasons I had no interest was because I was under the impression that the word of God was only there to hold me down or keep me back. But what are we reading right here? The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Do you want to be happy? Yes, you do. You were made by God to be happy. That's why you seek happiness everywhere. But what does the word of God tell us? That happiness can only be found in him and in his precepts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, opening our eyes to see the truth. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And then hear what the conclusion is of this little bit of scripture about the word of God and how wonderful it is. Verse 10, ask yourself, is this true of you? They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much pure gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned by them. In keeping them, there is great reward. More precious than gold. This is not hyperbole. This is not the, the Bible trying to make an extravagant point. This is speaking literally and truly that the word of God is more valuable than gold. And that point right there goes right to remind us of just how twisted this fallen world has become. When gold is perhaps the most sought after possession, even more than the word of God. But here this text is calling us. It's calling us back to the law of God, not to reject it, not to cut off its horns, but to take hold of it and to treasure it because it's what God has revealed to us. I think that we can do that together if we will understand what God's purpose in the law is. What is his purpose in what he has revealed to us? Well, uh, there was one uh, church father, a reformer, who developed three key uses of the law. And I want to remind you of these and have you think about them for a moment because they are helpful to us 
Here's the first. What does the word of God do? The word of God shows you your sin. When you think about the Ten Commandments and all of the righteous expectations of God that he's revealed to you in his word, when you read them, again, if you're honest, you'll see that you have not kept them. You'll see that you're at odds with God and you need his grace to save you. You cannot save yourself. It shows us our sin. And when it does, it does what it did for me back in 1995. It drove me to despair. Because in that moment, I realized that there was nothing that I could do to become right with God. There was nothing that I could do to earn his forgiveness. I had already broken all of the things that he loves and wanted from me. Well, that's the first use of the law is to show us our sin. It shows us our sin so that we might come to him and trust him when we hear the good news of what he's done for us. But the second use of the law is that God has given it to us to restrain sin in the world. You have this experience every day when you get in your car and you drive down the street, and as soon as you start to ease right up over the speed limit, you start to feel like, oh, better slow down. That is, in one way, the work of God's law, restraining your sin. It's holding you back because of its threatenings, because of its warnings. The law of God continues to do that for you and me. It warns us, written on our hearts as Christians. It tells us when we're going the wrong way. But third, God's law is useful to us in particular as Christians because it shows us how we can glorify God by enjoying him. Just as that first answer to the catechism question of what is the chief end of man, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him by knowing him, by worshiping him. Now you see why it is such a tragedy to cut off the horns of God's law, of God's word, to neglect it and to ignore it, to take your Bible and set it away and not read it because God has given it to us to be useful to us, to change us, to give us joy and strength and happiness, to give us persistence and perseverance and to call us to himself. Well, the first use of this text this morning as you hear about this warning about rejecting the law of God is that you would do just the opposite with me. That you would not reject the law of God, but that you and I would pursue the law of God. Take a moment, examine yourself in this moment, which have you been doing? Have you been rejecting God's law or have you been pursuing God's law? Have you been turning away from or neglecting the God who has spoken to you so graciously for your good? Have you rejected him or are you pursuing him? This is the call of this text. When you read about this, you should think about your own life like I do and say, am I rejecting your word? How am I rejecting your word? How can I... How can I cling to you? We must grapple with the word of God every day. So maybe that's where you are and that's where you should begin. That even today or tomorrow morning, you would begin anew 
opening your, your copy of God's word and you begin reading about him and praying to him and asking him to help you, I hope that will be true of you. It was not true of these people at this time and the tragedy continues. The second tragedy, having shorn off the horns of God's law, is that these people were no longer interested then in keeping his statutes. That's the second tragedy that we see at the end of verse 4, that unbelief like this wastes God's statutes. I think that word, wastes, is very important because the most common way that any of us think about God's statutes or his laws is that they're simply kept for the sake of keeping them. That's why they exist. You, they exist like to-do on a to do's on a list, you check them off as you go. But that doesn't have any sense that you're wasting them because that doesn't mean that they have any real value to you. They're just something to do, something to keep. They're arbitrary. But that's not the way that God talks about his law, is it? There's always great gain. You heard that in Psalm 19. And therefore, it's important, I think, for us to see that unbelief wastes God's statutes. Every day that we fail to keep God's statutes, every day that we fail to listen to him and pursue him and seek our highest joy and happiness in him is a wasted day. Every week when those kinds of days are strung together, seven in a row is a wasted week. And every life that is lived from beginning to end to the neglect of God's glory and his goodness to us, to the unkeeping of his statutes, is a wasted life. The good news of the gospel, the good news of God's grace, is that he has welcomed us into his family as Christians so that we may know the joys and the benefits of walking with him. But that's not what was true of these people at this time because we continue on reading that not only did they reject the law of the Lord, but they have not, he says, kept his statutes. These people known as Judah did not keep the statutes of God. What does that mean? Well, as we have seen, God's law is not a cosmic to-do list to keep a, a grumpy God off your case it's actually the opposite. And it is the opposite because the God of the universe is not a grumpy God. Think about your own life. What makes you happy? What ultimately makes you happy and makes me happy is to get our own way. It's to have what we want. It's to get things to work out according to our plans and our purposes. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if you could have all of your plans come to fruition and everything that you desired would come true? Would you be happy? You would be happy. And it's for that very reason that the God of the universe is the happiest being in the universe because he always gets his way. He is sovereignly in control He's never wringing his hands in heaven, concerned about what's happening on earth. He is always working his purposes. Well, now think about that in light of this God giving you his statutes. 
They're not given as a grumpy God to keep everybody in line, but rather see the picture of that father sitting on the couch with his children at his feet, and he's handing out to them these poems and these songs and these statutes, and he's saying, if you will walk in these, if you will sing these, if you will honor me and glorify me, my happiness will be yours. I will fill you with satisfaction and gladness and life. And that's why it's a tragedy to waste God's statutes. When the Bible uses that word statutes, as we've seen in other places, it's like a prescription. It's his way of telling us how we can glorify and enjoy him. That's why it's so tragic to have a happy God who has told you how to enjoy him and yet to have the unbelief of your heart simply say to him, no, and then throw out the prescriptions is complete insanity. Can you imagine if you were to go to the doctor for your normal yearly checkup and you receive a, a horrid diagnosis? It surely will, by its prognosis, result in the painful death not long from now. But then your doctor gives you good news and he offers you a prescription. And he says, if you will simply take this prescription, it will not only eradicate your illness, but it will rejuvenate your health in every other way. You take that prescription home, you drive right by the CVS, you walk in the door, and you shove it in the drawer and close the drawer. Well, that's insanity, isn't it? You wouldn't do that, would you? You wouldn't do that. But you and I do do that. Judah did that. They did not keep his statutes. They didn't keep his prescriptions. Now, the doctor in our illustration, he can only give you a prescription for your body. This is a doctor who gives you a prescription for your soul. There's nothing more important about you than your soul. It's the very life of you. It's the very center of you. And yet think about that. Think about the absolute absurdity that I would take those statutes and shut them in a drawer. It makes no sense whatsoever. Why? Why do I do that? I think the main reason that I have done that in my life at times, maybe it's the same reason that you have too, is that I have failed to see the love that is built into them. I keep going back in my old ways to think about the statutes of God, the word of God, the laws of God, again, as these cold, unfeeling things that are just bars on my cage. They're just trying to keep me in line. But that loses the whole loving center of his word, of his promises, of his law. It's packed with love. It is for my good. It is for his glory. Just as you hear in these words in Proverbs 3, listen carefully to this because it brings this truth so home to us. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe 
his rebuke. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights, blessed is a person who finds wisdom and one who obtains understanding. Did you hear it in those words? We're picturing God the Father with his children, giving them his statutes, and he's doing it. Why? Because he loves them. Because he wants them to be happy in him. He wants them to know him. And that's the tragedy of wasting God's statutes. But instead of wasting them, we do have an alternative, don't we? It's the use of our text next. And it is that instead of wasting them, instead of failing to keep them, instead of neglecting them, that we would know them. Another piercing question. Do you know God's statutes? Do you keep them? Do you want them? Do you like and love them? Well, only by God's grace, only by drawing near to the heart of God, can you. And you can. You can by faith in Christ. By cutting ties with the old person that you either are now, because you've not come to Christ yet, or the old person that you were, and he continues to rear his ugly head from time to time, or her, to grab a hold of God's statutes. Personally, with other people, we do this in our church all the time. That's why we're serious about community group life during the week or, or small group or one-on-one times of Bible study together. We're not just trying to fill our heads. We're trying to fill our hearts. We're restoring our souls. We're making the simple wise. We're rejoicing our hearts through the word of God. And then there is a third tragedy. Not only did Judah waste God's statutes, but Judah did what every statute waster does, and that is to replace them with lies. That's the third tragedy, that unbelief walks in the lies of the world, replacing those beautiful God-given statutes with the ugly world-given lies. Listen to what Amos says. The end of verse four, he says, their lies also have led them astray, those which their fathers followed. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. God says here that lies further led them away from God. It's lies that came in and replaced the statutes that God had given to them. He had given them his law. He had revealed himself to them. He had told them how they are to live. He had, he had given them provisions for how they could live in his kingdom, knowing and loving and enjoying him as he was the center of their universe. And yet they cut off the horns and they cast away the statutes and then they replaced them with lies. There's a principle here in every life. It is the principle of replacement. And it's simply this, that as creatures, 
we don't live in a vacuum. There are no people who are neutral. There's no neutral place that you can stand. You can't stand between two places as a creature in God's world. You're either here or you're there. Therefore, even if you could suck all of the truth or the air from a person's heart, it would not stay empty. But chasing into the open space, something else would invade. This is what's happened here for Judah. As they have cast away the statutes of God, right in the other ear have come the lies of the world. This is part of what led them astray, just as we read. But Judah's great issue, hear this, was not simply that they entertained lies. It's not simply that they believed lies. It's that they walked in them. This is what it means when it says, those which their fathers followed. It's walking. Lies are not content just to sit idle in your heart. They take over the command center and they lead us to walk out those lies. They were walking out the lies of their fathers, uh, of their own world that had come back in. And this was the great issue of their lives. Instead of walking in the statutes, instead of walking in the glory and the grace of their God, looking to him, they were walking in lies. The lies of, of a twisted fallen world, which we know very well, that tells us what really matters according to the world what kinds of things we, could, we should pursue, the way that we should handle other people, what we should set our hearts on. They walked in those lies. And those lies, those lies distorted their vision of the world. So it led them astray. Like a, like a carnival mirror. If you ever go to the state fair and you stand before one of those carnival mirrors, they're usually in a row and you look at yourself in one and you're, you're wavy and you look at yourself in another and you're like a rail. It distorts our vision, doesn't it? Looking into that mirror. Well, that's because they had exchanged the mirror of God for the mirror of the world. This happens to Christians every day. This happens to me every day. And it is a reminder that for this reason, much of the Christian life is a continual listening for unbiblical truth, for, for unbiblical thinking, and countering it with biblical truth. That's a very boiled down way to talk about the Christian life, isn't it? This is what it means to walk with God. It means to walk in truth with an eye on what else may be trying to creep in so that we can counter it with truth. It's an incredibly important part of the Christian life. It is our great concern in our church because we know as a church that we live in a world that manufactures these false ideas, these notions about God and the world. But we know where they come from. They come from the rejection of God's law the rejection of his ways. Listen to the way that Jeremiah put this. It's a very helpful picture in Jeremiah chapter two. Listen carefully and see how this might reflect parts of your life and mine. Are there ways that you have done what Jeremiah is talking about here? He says, for my people have committed two evils. Here they are. 
Number one, they have abandoned me. And then he describes himself in the most arresting way. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. If you look around the world, you will see people everywhere looking for water, trying to drink up that sense of satisfaction that's eating away at them everywhere they can, looking to jobs, looking to people, looking to substances, looking to politics, looking at all of these other places when God has described himself as a fountain of living water. But that's only one evil, having abandoned him, which is what we've read about here in this text. But then second, the second evil, because there is no neutral place. Instead, they have replaced with lies by carving out for themselves cisterns. That's a big tank that might hold water. Abandoning the fountain, dying of thirst, building a cistern, but it's a cistern that's always broken. It's always leaking. It cannot hold water. You have had that experience just as I have. You set your heart on something that you think will really make you happy. And in the end, the happiness just dribbles out the bottom. Just for a moment, you taste maybe the very top, and then it's gone. It's fleeting. Well, that's not the way that it works with the God that they have abandoned, the God of the Bible, the God who's given his word, his law to us. Because you notice from that text in Jeremiah 2 that he's not a cistern. He's not a tank. He's not full of water. He's a fountain. He's overflowing with living water all the time. There are no cracks. There's nothing leaking he is the source of living water. But our world continues to search. We continue to search. We put fancy names on our searches. We put ism at the end. But it's all the same. It's all a search for living water. Entire systems of philosophy and belief have been constructed simply to keep back God and to try to build a cistern for ourselves. They have fancy names sometimes. Nihilism, existentialism, stoicism, secular hedonism, Marxism, rationalism, egalitarianism, vegetarianism. I'm just joking. <laughs> but you see, we can't even resist isms even with our food. I think, friends, that is because God has made us as creatures of ism. He's made us as meaning makers. He's made us as people who are hardwired to search out a way of life that will fill and satisfy and complete. And yet only he can do this. For people who are living in a world of isms, we must make our meaning 
from him. We do that by knowing and embracing and loving his law, his gospel. And this is why we ought to be very thankful for the word of God. So we ought to treasure the word of God. We ought to wear those pages out. Get a new Bible and wear it out. Read it and turn it and read it and turn it until it's not even recognizable anymore. You ought to have coffee and water and food and tears and blood splattered upon your Bible. That's when you'll know you love the word of God. That's what we want. That's what we need. And we will need that. We will need that until the very end. I want to encourage you, if you have time this week, that you might read another psalm. And it's Psalm 119. It's the longest of the psalms at 176 verses. So it'll probably take you a little while, maybe a a few sittings in the mornings of reading through. But what you'll find in Psalm 119 is that it is a psalm about the law of God. In fact, what it does is it takes each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and it provides eight verses under each letter. It's thought that perhaps because the number seven seems to be fitting as a number of completion, that it's complete or perfect plus one, eight, and you have eight verses under each letter. And it carries out through the Hebrew alphabet to exalt and magnify the law of God. How beautiful, how glorious, how wonderful, how helpful, how glad-making is God's revelation to us? It is an amazing psalm. But I don't know if there's anything more amazing about it than the very last verse. Because it speaks to us of our real need for the word of God. Something that we seem to lose sight of so quickly. I lose it so quickly. After 176 verses of exalting the word of God, the very last verse says what? I have wandered about like a lost sheep. Search for your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. After 175 verses, don't you think we would have had it by then? Don't you think we would get it by then? But the very last verse reminds you, you will never get it. You will never corner it. You will never master it. You will ever be in need of it. And that's a challenge for us to take very seriously our care and our consideration of God's law. That we would learn from these words, learn from these verses, that we would not reject it, wouldn't waste it, we wouldn't replace it. We would love it. As we come to a close this morning, I want to challenge us as a church, those present with us and those who are online This is another call for us at this critical moment in the life of our church, in the life of our world, to reassert our commitment to what we've been talking about here. Personally at home, but to reassert our commitment also to one another. Every time, and we have very particular, very intentional opportunities within our church planned for us to be together on Sunday morning, to be in community group, a little smaller group during the week, 
and even smaller group one-on-one or in a small group Bible study, and then even smaller by ourselves every day, reading the word of God, treasuring God as we read about him and we sing to him and we love him. I want to challenge you to reassert your commitment. Evaluate your commitment. We've come out of a really hard year and a half. It shook us up. It messed up our schedules. We got into some other routines. It's time to come out of those. It's time to come back into these routines. ABF at 9.15, worship at 10.30, community group, and then any other opportunities we have to be together, praying, encouraging one another, sharpening one another, comforting one another, We should be making use of every single one because we believe what we've just seen today. We believe this about the word of God. We want our souls to be restored, our hearts to be rejoiced, our our eyes to be enlightened, our minds to be made wise. And we wanna do this together as a church. We wanna glorify God and enjoy him together. It could be that you're here and you're not a Christian not in the way that we've been talking about it today, not in the way that I mean when God did that work in my life I was telling you about. Well, today could be your day. It's the day for you to turn, come to Christ, place your trust in him, begin following him. We wanna help you. We wanna walk with you. We pray that you will make that decision today, even as we sing in just a few minutes, and that you'll let us know about that decision so that we can help you, and you can help us, and we can all grow together. Beyond that, as a church, we want to take seriously the word of God more and more and more. May he find us not rejecting or wasting or replacing. Do you find us treasuring? That's my prayer this morning. Please stand with me as we pray and we sing yet again. Father, it is to you that we lift our hands, that we open our hearts, that we submit our, our wills. You are the king of the universe. There's none like you. We pray that you would, by your grace, continue to work in our church and in our individual hearts, our homes, that you would draw us close to yourself more and more so that we would know you more and more, so that our our happiness in you would soar, our commitment to you would grow, and our worship of you would, would shine. We pray for your help. We want to fill our hearts with you. We want to sing to you and know you. And so we pray this morning that you would give us a real love, a renewed love for your law, for your word, for the good news of Jesus Christ, which has made the law useful in our hearts to do more than just condemn us, but to direct us and to grow us, change us, sanctify us, make us more like you. That's what our world needs. Our world needs more people like you. Let us be those people. Please change us and grow us. Even as we sing now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.